Alan Crane Productions, in association with the Emergent Life Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240, for Spring Semester 2024. Today, present value and future value. And at the uh, appropriate time, uh, I'll stop the lecture. You have a quiz today. But before we begin that, all of that, a quick look at the numbers. And I won't ask you whether this is a bull or a bear day because it's kind of not one or the other. Uh, if you look there, it, they, the markets had a strong opening for about the first hour, and then it just kind of fizzled out, and the bears took over. The Dow is just bouncing around barely a positive by now. It's just not one of those days where it, it could sustain the optimism that started it up. <clears throat> a couple of reasons for that, but going through and having a quick look at the, uh, the Dow is up about 0.12, that's nothing. S&P 500 is up a half a percent, and the NASDAQ is up three quarters of a percent. So yeah, it is sort of a bull day, but it just doesn't want to be a bull, bull day. It's sort of a, a I don't know what you'd call it. It's not a, an enthusiastic run up with no end in sight to the upside of it. So, but the other side of it, though, is uh, some good news there is that um, the 10-year bond, the yields are falling. That means prices are rising, which means that there's demand for uh, bond securities, but there's not any sell-off of, real sell-off of stocks, so it's not a flight to quality kind of thing. It's just that there is some enthusiasm in the bond market, and the yield continues its track downward, uh, as I had said in the lecture on Monday, it's trying to find its way down below 4%. And every time it goes down, well, that's better news for the economy as that will lead interest rates in general down. Gold, oddly enough, gold was trying to spike earlier, but then it's lost its enthusiasm too. So it's not like investors are charging, to, running to gold or anything like that. It's just not a very uh, bright, strong bull market today, but it isn't a bad market either. This is one of those kind of days, of, meh, it's okay. And as you can see, crude oil, it had been working its way up uh, perilously toward that uh, upper end of that trading range of 72 to 79. And now it's putting some distance on it, uh, going back down. There were some jitters in the market, in the oil market, earlier in the week. And it looks like they've finally calmed down. They, there's not going to be any supply disruptions or anything like that. Good news there. On the other side of the world, the Nikkei just couldn't find any reason to be happy most of the day. It started out right at the bell in negative territory. And then it just kind of floated from there, a little bit down. You had a rally there at the end. A bull, bulls were trying to bring it up above uh, the, the water line there, but they didn't quite get there. And there was a sell-off right at the end of that. 
So the, Tokyo was not a happy place today. It wasn't anything terrible, but just wasn't happy. Now, interestingly, as of right now, and London is still trading, but they had a little bit of a surge. Well, it was not that bad. But then after some good news came through, it just sort of left it to drift and a little bit of sourness there, but it'll probably end the day up, but no much more, not much more than where it is now. It's just uh, they had some good news and that was the end of it. Let me show you a stock here. The, this one is, and I'm showing you this one because its earnings are coming up, I think, in two weeks. And so you've got activity, sort of like the side of the bets are going on as to how those earnings will look. Now, this is NVIDIA, NVDA. And one thing about NVIDIA here is their earnings are coming up in a couple of weeks. They are forecasting that their earnings will be very strong. And so first thing the markets do is they say, okay, we're going to price based upon what they're saying. And then as the earnings date, when they make their announcement of what they actually were for the quarter, then the rumors start. Well, they'll be below what they estimate or they'll be above what they estimate. So that'll drive the markets up to the point where the earnings call happens. And here you can see NVIDIA is a stupidly expensive stock, $730 per share which puts it, uh, I mean, yeah, if you want to buy a round lot, a hundred of them, you can, but I mean, that's going to cost you a lot. Even one share is awfully rich for most, most people in this class, including me. But you notice that it is up one and point one, about 1.15% for the day. In other words, the rumors are that the earnings will come in better than what NVIDIA is saying they will. Now, if you look down here real quick, you can see a, a quick chart of earnings. You notice that NVIDIA has been beating its earnings forecasts for the last year, every, for each quarter of the last year. When it says, well, our earnings will be here, for example, the last one, they'll be a little better than $2 a share. Well, they came in quite a bit better than $2 a share. So now uh, the same happened here with this quarter. They, the company said, we, are, we think our earnings will be about three forty dollars a share. Well, when they came in, they were $4 a share. <coughs> and so that gives the market this feeling that the company is conservative in forecasting its earnings. So here we come on February. Oh, that's the 21st. It's not quite... Uh, well, that's a week from now. I'm sorry, that's a week from now. So NVIDIA is saying our earnings are going to be at about 450 a share. And if you're looking at this, the market is pushing it up a little. It was pushing it up saying, okay, we think that it will probably be a little better than 450 a share. We're going to buy in. Now, here's the rule, and I said this on Monday, and I'll say it again. There's an old rule in uh, investing, this kind of investing. Buy on the rumor, sell on the news. In other words, right now the rumors are that NVIDIA is going to come in with a very strong, stronger than their estimate, earnings for the previous quarter. And so the, it's going up. So you see buying on the rumor. Now, 
when the company comes out with, well, our earnings were, well, suppose they are better than normal. That's not going to move the stock at all. So you sell on the news. If they come in worse, you get out of there before they make the earnings call. Any way you cut it, it's smarter to get out when the news is, is, is about to happen on what, really, uh, what the earnings really were. So right now you see the market buying. Let's, let's look back here about five days. Get It's kind of pushing itself upward here. It had a big spike when there were rumors that they were going to come in substantially above 450, maybe about 470, 480. So that was where the main part of the rumor was, act, uh, was uh, turned into action by investors. They bought there on the spike of the rumor. Now there is more belief. Sorry about that. Try that again, five day. Now there's rumors that maybe it'll be a little better than we expected. And so it's still climbing. It's doing pretty good for the time being. Now what's going to happen? It's hard to say, but right now there's positive sentiment about uh, NVIDIA. If you look at the numbers though, the beta is 1.68. That is a very risky investment. So even if you were to say buy on the rumor, you're buying on very risky rumors. This company is fickle. It, it can burn you one, either way. It can take, take you down. The P.E. ratio is telling us that it is, is substantially overvalued. So any price run-up in this is going to be temporary. Eventually, it will find its way back down toward intrinsic value at a P.E. ratio of about 30. So that's how you think about this. Now, you see NVIDIA is a profitable company. EPS, earnings per share, which we covered last week in ratios, is 7.58. Uh, or uh, actually, on one Monday we did this. So $7.58 a share. That's a really healthy company. But notice this. The dividend is really small. In other words, this company takes most of what profit it makes and plows it back into the company's operations. In other words, a rough way to think about it. The company made, that belongs to the shareholders, $7.58 per share. Now they are giving back to those shareholders only 16 cents of that. So the remaining $7.42, they're turning right back into the company. That's risky. I mean, if you're an investor, getting a dividend check is very, is very low risk. But thinking the company can throw your money back into the company instead of getting it to you as a dividend, and that money is going to turn into a great deal more money, well, that's when you take risk. This company has a very low dividend uh, that it pays, 0.02% of the price you're paying for the, for the stock. So it's almost virtually no dividend. You're betting on this stock continuing to rise for the foreseeable future. But when you see that the P.E. ratio is already well above what would be intrinsic value of the price, boy, that's risky as all get out. That's a very risky stock. Something that you might be tempted to jump into, but you might be sorry when you did it. Okay. Uh. I don't know. It's hard to say what else to look out. Well, one quick thing, if I'm not mistaken, 
Alphabet, which is what we call Google, up barely today. Very, very little activity. In other words, it's acting like the mark overall market is acting. Very sluggish, bullish, yeah, but not some spectacular bull run. On the other hand, you look at a company like Tesla, TSLA, which has a very high beta, and it is up. The stock market is up a little, and with a high beta, that would tend on an average to mean that the stock is going to go up by a magnifier of it. And sure enough, it is. It's going up today. But it's still not a spectacular thing. It's still kind of like a grind upward, but it is, a, it is an upward trend. So that's how you look at all these. Now, let me get down to the lecture. And uh, I've, I said a little about this on Monday and a couple of other lectures too, but <laughs> long ago, back uh, well before your time, and we did these present value, future value with formulas on paper and maybe we had real real sluggish old old calculators or we used slide rules which were a mechanical device for doing multiplications and divisions. But then came along in uh, 1975 I think it was, Texas Instruments came out with one of the first consumer level slide rule calculator. It was a scientific calculator. And it was something, it, it was just appalling the things that it could do that we used to do by hand or using tables. A few years later, back in the early 80s, I think it was, financial calculators started showing up. The uh, cream of the crop at the time was one by Hewlett Packard, the HP-12C. I'm telling you all this to explain why we're going to do it the way we're doing it, the way we are now, but back then, the HP-12C was like, in uh, all the big wigs, all the traders, all the corporate finance people got their hands on HP-12Cs. The only downside of them was they didn't use algebra, algebraic notation. They didn't say, you didn't put in five times two equals. They used another system called reverse Polish notation, RPN. So you would put in five, enter four times. And that's either here or there. Texas Instruments came out a while in the same era in competition with some low-end business calculators like the BA series. And they actually did things like present values, future values. And it was kind of a revolution, but it was kind of cumbersome. They had a one-line display and it was, you had to a little skill. It's still around and some people still use it. In fact, I, if the book is still doing it like they did in the last edition, which is the one that I've been using until I got my new edition, they actually show you how to do these problems on a BA2, a Texas Instruments BA2. But then came along something a little later, the Texas Instruments TI-80 series, 80, the 80, the 82, the 83, and the 83 plus, and the 84. These had an actual set of dedicated functions. Uh, they called them apps, and you hit apps, and then they gave you different ones, and you went to the finance, and lo and behold, the, 
about anything you could want to do. Bond, uh, mortgage payments, present values, future values, effective interest rates. And that was the standard. But of course, in colleges, they weren't going to have anything to do with that. They still wanted students to use either calculators, basic calculators, with, but usually with tables. You use tables in a class, uh, in, your, uh, in your accounting classes. Those are the same tables that have been around for, oh, actually more than a century. It's an old technology, really old. Just you go to the table and find a factor and you multiply that by the amount of money and there you've got an answer. But it's still cumbersome, it's ancient. But it's still used. And uh, then along came, well, then a few professors started saying, no, we're going to do these with those financial calculators. This is ridiculous. And I, even as, as recently as two years ago, I was taking flack because I was saying, we're using calculators. We're not going to do this with tables and with formulas. We're going to just use calculators. And of course, that was an outrage, and they, they tried to hang me for that. But then came Excel. But its predecessors had been around, and some were using its predecessor. The first one was CP slash M, and then came along SuperCalc, then Lotus 1, 2, 3, then Quattro, and then Excel. But God forbid I should use Excel to teach you how to do these finance problems. And of course, you can tell how much I care about that. You're going to use Excel to do most of your work in here. Now, don't get me wrong. There are times when a financial calculator can actually do it a little bit faster than Excel because it's, Excel is laid out for many, many different things. And these, the financial apps, they, they are right there just to do one thing and one thing only, finance. I'm going to show you something here. Now, one more piece of the story here is this. Uh, the Texas T, uh, Instruments, TI-83, their Texas Instruments actually created and kind of made available to geeks like me and others a virtual TI-83 calculator. It was, it comes up on your computer. It looks like a real one. It functions like a real one. It's just like you have, in fact, it even turns off after a minute if you don't use it for some reason to save battery or whatever. But it was out there. And it was available through the 90s. I was, I was using it. But then TI, Texas Instruments, it kind of disappeared from their website. Some years later, lo and behold, it showed up at Google, in a Google site uh, run by Google. And then, about five years ago, it, they locked it down so you couldn't get to it. Well, you see, I actually still had my old floppy disks that had the original virtual TI. And I'm going to show you something. I've made it available so that you can download it. Now, if you go posting this on social media, I will hunt you down. But here it is. 
The warning is it works only on PCs because PCs, Macs, are not used in finance. They're just not there. As a matter of fact, scientific subject matter, research, calculations, Macs just aren't built for that. So it's only available if you have a PC. Let me show it to you. You go into your files, okay? This is what you'll see, okay? Files. Right here. <coughs> now follow the, follow the instructions so you can see how this is done. Files. And if you go clear down to the bottom of the uh, top level of the files, you'll get the very last file you see is virtual TI-83 graphing calculator. You see it? And this is, in, you'll, you'll be able to do this, but you have to follow what I'm going to do here, step by step. First thing, you download it. Now the next thing is, you're going to go and find this file. And it'll be in your downloads. Uh, down, downloads, there it is. Virtual TI-83 calculator. Now this is a zip file. So you're going to have to right click. And well, this didn't work in my first class. Tried to, yeah, they've made it so that the just double clicking won't extract it. But you can just go like this. Right click, show more options. 7-zip. So extract the files that way. With a right click and go to more options, you'll see extract the files. And there it will come up. So what you're going to do is you're going to, you can leave this in downloads if you want. You're going to extract it, just extract it to the downloads. Okay, and you say okay. Now it will extract a folder of the same name. Now you can put this, leave it where it is. You might want to put it someplace else because if, you, if you're like me, you usually clear out your downloads. You delete your downloads after a few uh, days. So I usually just take this over and I put it in my documents. Well, that worked as like a frickin' charm. Oh, there it is. Well, let's try that again. Documents. There we go. I screwed up there. Documents, there it is. Now in here, you double click, and you'll have to double click, uh, you'll double click and get to a folder, uh, VTI 83. Go down one more level. There's the calculator, the one that is the blue icon. Don't just leave it there. Right click, and then Go down to more options and send it to your desktop. That way the calculator will always be right on your desktop where you need it the most. Now, you can't see the desktop. Really? Let me do this. This is what it will look like on your desktop. 
And that way you can bring it up whenever you want. I, you could leave it in double, go into documents every time you wanted to bring it up, but it's nicer to have it on your desktop. Watch. It's doing those. Look at that. There's your calculator. Okay? It's a real one. It does everything that the real one does. It never runs out of battery. And it's always there for you. You don't have to search around in your book bag for it. It's right there on your laptop or whatever. Now, I'll just show you this very quickly. Once in a while, I might, we'll do this in Excel, and then I'll say, well, let's see if it, in uh, the TI. Like I said, sometimes this calculator, it's more efficient to do it here. The downside, though, is that if you do finance calculations on the calculator, you don't have any documentation of it. With an Excel spreadsheet, you've got it. You can print it. You can email it to people. Here, it's just for you to be able to do something. If you do apps and finance, number one, enter, you've got all of these, anything, almost anything that you could possibly want for a class like this is there somewhere. And they just, uh, like for example, and I'm, I'm sneaking something in on you, time value of money solver. Now you don't have to know this. Don't type this for God's sake. But let's say we want the, how much you would, your monthly payments would be on a car. Okay, we're going to get a five-year loan with 12 payments per month, oh, 12 payments a year, so that would be 60 payments every year. Well, let's say that the APR on the loan is 7.99%. That's annual, so you have to divide it by 12 to get months. And I'll teach you how to do all this. Now, the price value, the present value, on almost any financial calculator you'll ever use, present values come out as negatives and you enter them as negatives. So let's say that you decide you want to buy a $28,000 car. So I would put in for the PV, negative 28,000. Try that again. 28,000. And I'm going to skip by that. I'm going to leave everything else alone. The payments are at the end of every month. You don't play with these, no matter what you were told by other uh in other classes. Future value, you're not going to pay any kicker at the end. So I just take it back up here to um, PMT and then I say alpha solve. And there's your monthly payments. That fast. This is actually f more efficient if you remember how to put in each of the entries. This is faster than Excel because you're going to have to do the setup of each of the parameters and then plug them in, remember what function it is and all that. This, and there are so many other kinds of problems that you could do. Let me do another one. Okay, let's say that for the next 15 years, I'm going to put money into an account that pays 5.25% compounded quarterly, divide by four. And then I'm going to say, whoops, so that means that this would be 15 times four 
quarters. You always have to make account of the compounding period. And the payments that, I, let's say that I decide that I am going to want to uh, make payments into that of every quarter I'm going to put in $500. And I have no present value. I'm not going to put in, in any extra at the beginning. So that's a zero. Now in this case, I'm going to put in the payments at the beginning of every quarter. So how much will I have after 15 years of doing this? That was, I said 15 years. Yeah, let me do 15 times four. And it's a lot easier to fix it here. So let's see how, how much I'll make my last payment and one quarter after that, I'll take the money out. Let's see how much I'm taking out, alpha. <coughs> so, $45,800. This is incredibly faster and more efficient than Excel. But Excel is how we do things. And Excel, you will have a paper trail electronic or printed if you wish. So even though this does lightning fast, once you get the hang of it, it's just sort of like a mini language. It works awfully fast. That's all there is to it. So I, I, I won't hate on you if you want to use a calculator, either a physical calculator or this virtual TI-83. I won't hate on you, but you do have to, we do have to know the um, uh, the Excel version. To help you with that, I have already created a bunch of templates. Now we're going to build these templates together so you see how they work and see where you have to put things in. But in Excel, let me do this, student view. So in your files, you go down here to your spreadsheets and you will have a whole bunch of different templates for different major problem groups like bond calculations, like free cash flow analysis, like internal rates of return and uh, loan payments and net present values and internal rates of return, present value and future value will have templates to do these. Your job is to master the Excel and then to make those templates your own so that they can do this, which we did a century ago on paper, then we did with tables, then we did with uh, calculators, and then somewhere along the line we finally came to Excel. And that's where we are now. We can't be too comfortable here because Excel is evolving rapidly. It'll still be around for several decades, but it's beginning to be augmented. First by Python, it's augmenting it, and then within a year, easily, artificial intelligence will also jump in too. I've already connected some uh, one chat GPT to Excel, so the GPT goes over and creates models in Excel for me to use. And so, but 
I'm trying to keep you as close to the frontier as I can. And right now the frontier is Excel. So these are here for you. And we will go through each of them. I, you might even want to download and look at them and see if you can figure out how what happens. I've tried to color code them so that you know where something needs to be put in and what you leave alone and where your results come out. Uh, matter of fact, let me... Uh, how does this one look up? Oh, I don't... I always do that. Uh, let me look at the, present, the one today. Seriously? <laughs> now, these are for annuities, but you can use these for lump sums as well. And you can see how I set them up. There's, they are color-coded. Don't touch anything here. Put in the white spaces, you put things that you get from problems and all of that. This is just taking you on a quick tour of what I've created for you to do these with. This, in one way, yes, it does make you weaker because you don't know the formulas and you can't do things the way we did back in the uh, Neolithic period, but in a way it makes you a lot stronger. And so we have to leave some things behind as we accelerate into the future. And that's where we are, at least in my classes. And as long as you're in my class, I'm right. Okay, enough of that. Let me go back. Let me get out of this for a while. Now, I want to point out one thing here. Sometimes a problem is, uh, in what we're doing right now, a problem is so easy, the formula is so lightweight, that it's better not to use Excel at all. Uh, and even the calculator you use, just use as your uh, dumb monkey in doing them. But I start this, and I do appreciate that you were shown this in your accounting classes, and that's why I have to do it again, so that you learn how to do it from a finance person. Let me do it. You came to me, sir, and you decided, I, you, you told me, I want to borrow uh, $20 from you for a year. And I did the old uh, intermediation, uh, the level, the timing, and the risk. Okay, yeah, I'm going to give you a $20, that, 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 that. And, uh, and you say, sweet, bruh. I mean, I'll give you the $20 back one year from today. And I say, you kiss my wrinkled old ass, you will. What's wrong with him giving back that money right now, madam? G giving it back to me in a year. My $20 is going to give it back to me in a year. Will you get away from that wallet? Dude, <laughs> what's wrong with that? It takes too long. Well, I said it's a year's okay. I mean, it's a year's okay, but he's going to give me my $20 back. Yeah. It's not worth the same. Oh, well, that, there's, that's exactly right. But we can even ignore inflation eroding purchasing power. We can erode risk factors and all that. There's something basic. You see, I, am, I don't have this $20 for a year. That means in a, for a year, I cannot use that $20 to buy a Grand Slam breakfast at Denny's on their Happy Meal menu and a piece of pie afterwards. I have foregone consumption. I have given it up for a year. So I want, he has to offer me some compensation 
for the opportunity cost of foregone consumption. That's not inflation eroding purchasing power. That's nothing but the fact that I don't get my Grand Slam Happy Meal and my piece of apple pie and my coffee for a year. That's the problem. You see, that's how Western capitalism works. You give up something, you get something for giving it up. And that is what we call an interest rate. That's what we call it. It's an interest rate. That's what its function. Now, there, you'll see later in the course, interest rates have a lot of different parts to them. But at the core of every interest rate is a reward for, uh, uh, for giving up consumption. The opportunity cost of foregone consumption. That's what an interest rate is. And another thing about an interest rate. Well, two other things. One is that the interest rate uh, has different names. They're really all interest rates. We can call it a yield, a compounding rate, a discount rate. We can call it some other things. Uh, but it's, they're all interest rates. Now, the interest rate that I will charge you is not a price. It's a rental rate. A rental rate for money. It's the rental rate. So it's like a wage rate. It's like anything else. When you, uh, get, a, when you get a job, yeah, you know, I've been telling you, get a job for a long time. Get a job, man. No, but when you are working a job, I hired you. I didn't buy you. That's $7.25, in your case, $4 an hour. That is, that is not a price. I am just renting you for, for whatever I, I need, okay? That's the whole point of understanding that these are just rental rates. It's like real estate, rental rate of property, or something like that, a wage rate, rental rate of labor and human capital. Interest rates are just a rental rate of money or capital, one or the other. So, taking all that into account, we begin the journey, and I, I do this in a way warning you that for many years I was a math teacher both at the Ohio State University and in a K through 12 school where the kids liked me but the administrators were really scared of me but uh, or didn't like me so uh, let me start it out and hear me out about this somewhere in your dark past You learn conversions, unit conversions. One centimeter equals 2.54, uh, one inch equals 2.54 centimeters. One foot equals three yards. Now, what we do with present values and future values is we are doing unit conversion. That's all we're doing. The difference is that these are what are called static conversions. They're the same in any situation. If, you're, if the units are the same, the conversion rate is the same. 
And it's true at any given time, period, any given place, anywhere in the universe. You're going to fly to Alpha Centauri, and your co-pilot's going to say, well, how far have we gone? Well, we've gone uh, one billion centimeters. And he says, no, dude, I want it in inches. Come on, man. We're English. We use the English system. So it would be the same there in 200 years. But with money, it's not a static conversion. It has things that would be different depending upon actually two parameters. And I'll get into that in just a minute again. As a matter of fact, those tables that you had in uh, your accounting courses to find present values and future values, those were unit conversions. No one probably ever told you that, but that's all they were. They're just unit conversions based upon the interest rate and the time period. The interest rates across the top, I think that was the way, the interest rates across the top, the time period down the column, or maybe it was the, uh, the other way around. But those were nothing but unit conversions. But as you could see from those monster tables, those ridiculous tables, they were not static. You couldn't just look at the same place every time. <coughs> so what I'm going to do <coughs> is I'm going to write a formula. The for this is actually the core formula of all of the time value of uh, of all time value of money problems. The future value of a lump sum of money. Future value of a lump sum. Now this formula is so basic that you you might want, not want to use a uh, Excel at all for something like this. Just set it up and key the numbers into the calculator. But the future value is the current value, what we call the present value, times one plus the disk, the interest rate, and that quantity to the t power. This is where you have to watch yourself. Because the R is the periodic rate and the T is the number of periods. So, the periodic rate. So let's say that we had 8% APR, annual, and the T, let's say the T, let's say that the T is, oh, I don't know, five years. See, these are both in years, annual percentage rate, number of years. So let's take an APR of 8%. So, the periodic rate and over here the number of periods. Over here are. So let's say that we had 
number of periods that would be for let's say that the number of periods was one so in that case you would have eight percent divided by one which would be eight percent and that's what you would put in there, 8%, 8 divided by 1. The number of periods would be 5 times 1. So the number of periods would be 5. So you would put a 5 there. Let's say that the number of periods was 2, semi-annual compounding. In this case, R would be 8% divided by 2, which is 4%. And the number of periods would be 5 times 2, or 10 periods. So in the R, you would put 4%, and in the T, you would put 10. Let's try quarterly, 8%. divided by 4. Quarterly is 4. In that case, your, so, your, uh, so your R would be 4, and your number of periods would be 5 times 4. There would be 20 quarters in a year. Those would be the numbers you'd put in. Now, a very popular one is monthly. That's how you, most consumer loans have monthly payments. So the compounding is automatically monthly. In that case, you'd have 8% divided by 12, which would be 0.67%. And the number of periods would be 5 times 12, or 60 months in 5 years. Now, the next one. Suppose that the compounding is weekly. What would be... What would you multiply the per interest rate or divide the interest rate by weekly? 52. 52. You'd be surprised at how many people don't know that. In my last class, I got 54. Eight percent divided by 52 for weekly. And your number of periods would be 5 times 52, which is, I'm not even going to try. 260. How? 260. You did that in your head? Yes. Hell. Okay, the next one, minutely. No, 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 don't, don't, don't. <laughs> yeah, there is, yeah, minutely and... And there's actually even, a, if you have massive amounts of money, a bank may give you instantaneous compounding. And it doesn't even follow that simple division. You have to use the natural constant E to the R uh, or to the negative R. It's weird. But anyway, okay, enough of that. But now, a little side note here. The prefix by, B-I. That means that it's every other. So if I said bi-weekly, that'd be 26. Bi-monthly, 
every two months, that'd be six. And then there's the semi. You see it there, semi-annual means twice a year. Semi-weekly would, uh, would it, it gets a little bit more complicated. So I, I, I wouldn't do that. Semi-annual is normal. But the buy, you hear, well, you're paid bi-weekly. And in that case, that means that you get a paycheck every two weeks. And that's actually very common in uh, some uh, companies and industries to pay bi-weekly. So I, I won't throw that one at you. But just know the 1, 2, 4, 12, 52. And those will get you through. Well, let's put it into practice. I died and you were my son. And I'm bequeathing to you $250,000. I'm not dead yet. I've just told you about this $250,000. So, of course, the first thing you do is go look up how to kill your dad. Uh, but as it turns out, now I, actuarially, I will live to 83 years of age. Now, don't believe that stuff about 77 or whatever it is right now. Life probabilities don't work really like that. If you live to a certain age, you will live a certain number of years past that. So if I live, for example, if, I live, if I'm 65, there's a very high probability that I will live to be 83 years old. So let's take that as a basis here. You will inherit $250,000 in 18 years. How much is that worth now? If the discount rate is 7.4% compounded quarterly. Now over here I'm going to do another problem. Where you put $15,000 in the bank now. You put $15,000 in the bank, in a bank account, that pays 5.75% compounded monthly. 
how much will you have in 15 years? These are two opposite sides of the same coin. Let me explain. You see, in that second problem, in that second problem, I am trying to find a value in the future. So that formula is what I need. But the, that first problem over there, that's, I need to know a present value. How much something is worth now. So I have to take this formula and for that one, I have to rearrange this formula so that I get the present value, and that will be the future value, divided by 1 plus r to the t. So this is the future value formula. This is the present value formula. And those two are the foundation of all of the other formulas. They might look a lot more complicated, but they really all are derived from that. One little thing about this present value formula, you'll oftentimes see me write that as, instead of future value divided by one plus r to the t, you'll see me write it as future value times one plus r to the negative t. From your high school algebra, the reciprocal of the denominator to a power is the multiplication of that denominator by the negative of the power. Now, why do I do this? It's practical. Dividing by a complicated set of numbers calculation, you are more likely to make a mistake in it. That's, you can do it with the second line there but you'll see me usually do it by the third line. Just run it as multiplications instead of trying to remember how many parentheses you put in in a denominator. And I am all forever getting that wrong. So in other words, for the second problem I did, where you put $15,000 in the bank, I will need to find out the future value. And that would be the first formula there. It's the present value, 15,000, times 1 plus the R, 0 0.0575, divided by monthly, 12. And then you raise that to, how many years did we have? The 15 times 12. Here's where you've got to watch it. That, that exponent, you've got to put it in parentheses. Otherwise, the calculator will take the power as 15 and then multiply the result by 12. Let me show you. And I'll just do it on this TI since I've got it up here where you can see it. Do you see this? This calculator turns off after a minute. Why, why would the calculator turn off 
to save battery. Okay, let me get out of this. By the way, the way you get out of the apps, second quit. Okay. Cranking it along here. I'm going to take 15,000 times, open parenthesis, one plus point zero five seven five. Close the parenthesis and then raise it to the open parenthesis fifteen times twelve. Oh, I screwed up. Did you see what I did there? I didn't even look at my own formula. Divided by point zero five seven five divided by twelve close a parenthesis and then raise that to the 15 open parenthesis 15 times 12 so let me repeat that for the podcast 15,000 times open parenthesis 1 plus 0 0.0575 divided by 12 close the parenthesis to the power open parenthesis 15 times 12 close parenthesis a caution here if you are doing just formula math on a calculator or you're using Excel you use the decimal perversion if you are in the apps on a financial calculator including this one you don't turn it into a decimal you key it in as the percent so if I were in the apps here I wouldn't have put 0 0.0575 I would have just typed in 5.75 all financial calculators do that they take it as a percent Excel doesn't the normal front end of any calculator scientific calculator or other calculator doesn't do it but anyway, survey says, hit enter, $35,463. A little word about that here real quick. Uh, don't worry about what well, if the book says rounded two decimal places yeah but when we do these in my in my book the dollar just round it to the dollar and if you're on a quiz or an exam I give you a couple of dollars leeway either way and uh, it, just in case you had a little bit of a, a finger fart or something when you were keying something in the next question is does this make sense the answer, if you've done something major wrong, a wrong place, a division instead of multiplication, or something like that, finance problems will either blow up the answer or turn it into little pennies. If you get a number that kind of makes sense, well, you probably got it right. So that's a comforting thing. Now, let me do the other one here. For that one, we're going to use the future value, the present value is $250,000. 
times 1 plus, in this case, it will be 0 0.074 divided by 4 quarterly to the negative, how many years was it? 18 years times 4 quarters per year. So in that one, 250,000 times, open parenthesis, 1 plus 0 0.074 divided by 12, close the parenthesis, and then you raise that. Now, open parenthesis. Why do I do this? Why don't they put me in a home? You know, give me a tray of food every day and, you know, maybe let me play on the shuffleboard and take my Metamucil. Close, open parenthesis. Now here, one thing I want to uh, mention here. Oh, let me try that again. Really? 250,000 times, open parenthesis, Whoa, boy. If I had a dog I'd sh uh, like this, I'd shoot him. Plus 0 0.074 divided by 4, close the parenthesis, and then raise that. One point here. Put a negative right here. Use, don't use the minus, use the negative. And you put that 18 times 4. Close the parenthesis. And you get an answer, $66,795. And everything else, we'll, we'll do an Excel on Monday. Right now, you have a quiz to take. Once you're finished with the quiz, that's all I have for you today. I thank you.